disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins. Folks, and welcome to another episode of Back to the Bins. I am Michael Bailey. Scott Gardner is on assignment. Actually, Scott's just really busy this week, so I am flying solo once again with a comic I have been wanting to read for some time, but like so many other comics in my collection, it's just been kind of sitting in a short box waiting for me to get to. And, you know, it's, it's kind of funny how I got this book. Uh... This book isn't one of those comics that I had as a kid and read and reread and reread and loved and hugged and called it George and whipped it to shit, as Scott would say, reading, and it got lost somehow, and it took years and years to find it again, and I got it at a really good deal, so that makes it all the more special. No, this book this book proves that sometimes I'm a big freaking idiot. The comic I'm talking about is DC Comics Presents number 47. This will, DC Comics Presents, as many of you know, was the Superman team-up book, kind of like Brave and the Bold was Batman's team-up book for most of its career, I guess. Is that the right way to say it for a comic book? Run. Run would be a better word than career. Going off notes here, folks, so just uh, you're getting it kind of raw and live as it comes into my head. Anyways... This book was where Superman teamed up with other heroes, and I've covered issues, or at least an issue of this before on the show, and uh, <laughs> and Scott came up with a rule, which is pretty much uh, dead on point, is that if Superman teams up with a member of the Justice League, except if it's the Flash, it's pre- pretty much going to suck. Uh, but if he teams up with another character, like a character you wouldn't expect, it's usually an interesting story. This book is kind of a, a mix of those two, and I had the chance to buy this issue for a dollar back in the late 90s, somewhere between 1996 and 2002. You know, it was just sitting at Titan Games and Comics, but at the time, I wasn't trying to complete my run of DC Comics Presents. So it just sat there, and I'm like, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. Well, come around 2001, the 80s started making a huge comeback, not only in popular culture, but in comic books as well. In fact, the day after 9-11, on uh, September 12th, 2001, the G.I. Joe comic that Devil's Do did, originally published by Image Comics, came out. And this was followed in pretty short order, I think. It, it, it could have come after, but I think it came uh, before the Transformers book, that Dreamwave did, and Masters of the Universe, being a big 80s property, was not far behind. In fact, a new animated series was developed for Cartoon Network that had three great first episodes that formed like the origin of the new He-Man, 
And then I never watched another episode after the first one after that because it, frankly, just reminded me of the old series. I wanted something kind of new and different, and it was just kind of silly and goofy. The thing is, is that DC Comics Presents number 47 features the Masters of the Universe. In fact, you know, on the cover you have He-Man about to square off against Superman, who is being controlled by Skeletor, while Castle Grayskull looms in the distance. And Superman thinks, as long as Skeletor magically controls me, I must attack He-Man, and that means I could die. And you have the title of the book, which is From Eternia with Death. So... Around late 2002, I decided, hey, I'm going to finally get my DC Comics Presents run together. And I went to Titans, and I bought just about everything they had, because they were having a 50% off sale. And Super- and number 47 wasn't there. And I asked Chuck, and he's like, well, He-Man's pretty big. I kind of marked up the price and put it on the board, and it sold quickly. And I'm like, shit, you know? So I look and look and look. Every comic book store in the Atlanta area that I went to, which was like four or five didn't have this comic. So I slowly started to look on eBay. And finally, I think I ended up paying like 10 bucks for this thing. Just because I needed to fill my hole. Because I was really big about reading the books that I was buying at the time. And I really wanted to read this comic. And it turns out that I didn't. So the 10 bucks was wasted. And I should have just waited until, you know, the whole He-Man revival, uh, f- you know, failed. Which... Eventually it did. A comic book company did put out some Masters of the Universe books. Uh, I forget which one. I never read any, but, but it seemed to be kind of a adaptation of the new animated series. But anyways, this book, which has a cover date of July 1982, which means it came out in the early part of that spring of 82, is kind of interesting because the He-Man featured in this book is nothing like the He-Man that was eventually featured on the animated series. Um, DC actually produced the mini-comics that came with the first 11 figures. And this is why he eventually was paired with Superman. Because at the time, if you wanted to get a character noticed, you put him with Superman, because Superman was the big dog at DC Comics. And... I never read this as a kid. I never really knew this existed as a kid. In fact, as a kid, I didn't even know DC put out a He-Man comic. I remember, I vaguely remember the, the mini-comics, but I came in not late to the He-Man party, but late enough that I didn't get the original figures. In fact, the, the first three He-Man figures that I got as a kid uh, was on Christmas of 1983. Uh, amongst my uh, Star Wars Christmas, because that was my second Star Wars Christmas, where I got the Millennium Falcon and the X-Wing and the Scout, uh, the, the exploding Scouter bike or Scouter bike. Did I just say Scouter bike? Scout bike. Um, my mom got me, or Santa got me, a three-pack of He-Man, Tila, and Ram Man, and I'm like, who the heck is this He-Man character? And you know, soon enough, I was watching the the animated series religiously. Uh, even past the Orko's, you know, moment of zen at the end of the episode where he told you that, you know, because it was filmation, so it was going to have a fucking moral to it. <sighs> Anyways, I didn't give a shit about the morals. I'm going to be completely honest. I just wanted to see He-Man fight Skeletor. I was there for that and for him to hold aloft his magic sword and say by the power of Grayskull. And Christmas of 84, I did get a 
buttload of He-Man figures. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, earlier that year I had gotten some stuff for uh, my birthday and all that, but Christmas 84 was the big He-Man year where I finally got Castle Grayskull and a bunch of figures, including Moss Man, who my mother hated because he smelled badly, and that character had, you know, felt kind of funny. I can't remember if I got Skunkor. I think I think he stunk too. Was that the character's name? But in those eleven mini comics that DC produced for the figures, there was a whole different storyline going on with Eternia and He-Man and Skeletor than was in the animated series. Uh, reading from Wikipedia. In the earliest comics, He-Man is a wandering barbarian on Eternia, a world dealing with the aftermath of a great war that has devastated the civilizations that once reigned and has left behind fantastical machinery and weapons. The events of the Great War opened a rift between dimensions, which allows the evil warlord Skeletor to travel to Eternia, and now he has set his sights on the ancient castle Grayskull, the fortress of mystery and power. Whoever attains control of Grayskull will gain the power to become the master Master of the the universe. universe. To prevent Skeletor from achieving his goal, He-Man has been given special powers and weapons by the Sorceress, who was referred to as the Goddess in the early stories, except in her debut appearance in which she is shown the one and only time to have green skin, and sets out to defend the castle from Skeletor. And that's kind of where we pick things up in this issue. Uh, which, I again, is called From Eternia, With Death. This was written by Paul Kupperberg, with pencils by Kurt Swan, and inks by Mark, Mike DiCarlo. And I'll tell you, Mike DiCarlo is an interesting inker to put with Swan, because he kind of livens up the pencils, which, you know, I'm not bashing on Swan, because Scott and I have been called out on about that in the past. But he kind of makes it less stiff. It, you know, it's still stiff in places, and He-Man looks kind of wonky, and so does Skeletor, especially on the splash page. Uh, But it's still, you know, the art in this is still very, very cool. Anyways, on the first page, we have the usual rocketed to Earth from the dying planet Krypton. The baby Kal-El grew to become the Man of Steel, and now he fights side by side with the greatest heroes of yet another world, Superman Superman and and Masters Masters of the the universe. Time, they say, is relative, but then so is place, especially when you're Superman, with powers and abilities to carry you throughout the cosmos, across the myriad dimensional planets. Even if sometimes these travels are made unwillingly, with the aid of forces totally unconcerned with the the desires of those involved, even a Superman. So then we get into the story, and in the royal city of the world known as Eternia, Prince Adam is in the middle of his training session with man-at-arms, and the two have the usual sensei-student banter-slash-conversation type thing. Soon, Tila, a member of the Royal Guard, comes in and gives Adam a good-natured hard time as well, mostly centered around her father, man-at-arms, and the fact that she is constantly pulling his royal fat out of the fire. Adam tells her that with any luck, she'll be seeing him later at the Dragon's Breath Inn, where he'll be swinging from a chandelier. In Metropolis, Clark Kent is busy playing klutz at work before changing into Superman to go on patrol. Back on Eternia, Adam is having a grand old time at the end, though his cat Cringer just wants to go home. A guy named Crusher, not kidding, his name is Crusher, comes up and starts mocking Cringer, which Adam doesn't take too kindly to, and asks the guy to step outside. Crusher 
appeases uh, Adam's request and throws him through the door. Before the fight can really begin, though, Tila and other members of the Royal Guard come and break up the fight before it can start. As Tila and Adam talk about Adam's chances against Crusher, he spots a falcon flying high and knows that he is needed. He rushes off with Cringer and arrives at a cave where the sorceress transforms Adam and Cringer into the mighty He-Man and Battle Cat before informing him that once again Skeletor is up to no good at Castle Grayskull. Outside Grayskull, Skeletor and Beastman discuss Skeletor's desire to possess the power inside the castle, and the bone-headed one tries to gain entry with his half of the power sword. Back in Metropolis, Superman investigates a strange storm cloud high over the city and ends up transported to Eternium. He squares off against Skeletor, who slashes at the Man of Steel and tears the fabric of his shirt. Superman blocks the next blow and punches Skeletor right in the breadbasket, leading Beastman to jump the Man of Steel from behind. Superman makes short work of him, but ends up getting knocked back by a blast from Skeletor's sword. He-Man comes upon Superman just as he crashes into the ground, and the two become fast friends and rush off to fight Skeletor. They are soon joined by Man-at-Arms, and soon it is on as He-Man rushes towards Skeletor with an axe. Skeletor manages to lay a mystic whammy on Superman, and suddenly he is fighting He-Man, though it is quite against his will. The fight is fierce, but Superman lays He-Man out like a cheap suit courtesy of a Kryptonian haymaker, and flies towards Grayskull in an effort to smash into it. With his super breath, he causes the rock to become a super tough prison, which somehow frees Superman of his spell. Not quite sure how that works. He-Man comes to and is rather happy that Superman is back in the Truth and Justice gig. Superman grabs Skeletor, but that rascally villain teleports away. There is the usual You Rock, no dude, You Rock dialogue between Superman and He-Man before the Man of Steel flies back home with He-Man saying that should Superman's help be required, he knows how to call upon him. Now, like I said, this is the pre-television show He-Man, and there are a lot of differences between what we see here and in the mini-comics and what the series would eventually become. First up, there's no magic sword. In fact, in this era, Skeletor has a sword and He-Man has a sword. And if you combine them both, you can gain entrance to Castle Grayskull, something that was carried over into the toy line. Then there's Grayskull, which is this mythic place and not the home of the Sorceress, who is living like a bear in a cave. And then there's the Sorceress, who looks like Tila, or at least the Tila action figure did. And there was some confusion over this uh, with the animated series. Uh, eventually, though, it was revealed in the animated series that Tila was actually the daughter of the Sorceress. And when I say it was revealed, I mean it was talked about in one episode and never mentioned again. We're never going to talk about this again. Prince Adam is very different here, too. He's a lot like Thor, actually, um, without the superpowers. And, and he's not the foppish Bruce Wayne type of character. In fact, he's he's mostly about drinking and kicking ass, which, you know, I can kind of respect. I mean, if I was a prince, I'd be kind of a dick, too. Uh, but I, I kind of like this Adam more than the I'm a wimp Adam from the animated series. He also doesn't use a sword to become He-Man, which I thought was the shit when I was eight. In fact, like I said, he went at uh, Skeletor with an axe. And if y'all had He-Man figures when you were a kid, especially the, you know, the actual He-Man figure, you know he not only came with a magic sword, but with an axe as well. And I was always kind of confused by that, because at the time, 
all I knew was the animated series. So I'm like, why does he have an axe? But you know what? It's kind of cool that he would have different weapons because, you know, I don't know if y'all know this, but <laughs> the He-Man line only became, came along because Mattel, I think it was Mattel that did the He-Man line, uh, had a, had the rights to do a Conan the Barbarian action figure line and then the first movie came out and it was violent as fuck. So they're like, "Shit, we can't, we can't market this to kid, you know, kids. <laughs> this is never going to work. What are we going to do?" And in true licensing fashion, it was the comic book people that eventually came up with the backstory, most of which was discarded when Filmation got a hold of it. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that the, the mini comics, from what I've seen, were kind of dark. They were more of a sword and sorcery tale, and Filmation wasn't going to have any of that. I mean, we're talking about an animated uh, a company that produces animated series where the heroes never actually fought anybody. In fact, if you ever saw He-Man punch anything, it usually wasn't another person, and you never saw the fist attack. You just saw that stock shot of He-Man punching at the screen. You know, I didn't notice this when I was eight and nine because I was just you know into the you know the, the bright and shiny colors. But you know, watching it today, I can't. I have a best of Masters of the Universe animated DVD, and I put it in, and I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Oh my god, this doesn't hold up. And a lot of that has to do with the fact, here's a tangent, because it wouldn't be an episode of Back to the Bins or Tales of the JSA if there wasn't a tangent. Um, (laughs) Oh, wow. Anyways, I have this theory um, that 80s animation and some television series, but 80s animation pretty much fell into two camps. There were the series that tried to tell a story, like Transformers had an ongoing story arc with it, where, you know, an ep- you know, there wasn't a tight continuity, but the show kind of built on itself, and it was constantly introducing new characters. G.I. Joe was a lot the same way, but I, I think Transformers did a better a better job of building a mythology around these characters than G.I. Joe did, which was more about, hey, let's show our new figures and, 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 and vehicles and all that. Not that I'm saying there's anything wrong with that, but I can watch G.I. Joe and Transformers today. I can't watch He-Man, I can't watch Thundercats, and I can't watch Voltron. Because really, when you boil it down, those series were not so much telling a story, but were kind of the porn of 80s children entertainment. And, and when I say that, when you watch porn, you're there for basically one reason. You're not there for the plot, you're there to see specific moments. Uh, with Voltron, it was when they formed Voltron, formed a blazing sword, cut the robe beast in half, and went the fuck home. With Thundercats, it's when, you know, he finally used that Eye of Thundera to give him sight beyond sight, realized that the, you know, shit needed to be done, did the Thunder, Thunder, Thundercats ho thing, called everyone together, and the music kicked up, and it was awesome. With He-Man, you know, we were all there for the one moment where Prince Adam raises the sword and says, by the power of Grayskull, I have the power, turns, you know, Cringer into Battle Cat, and rides off into battle. Can anybody who is not really into the series remember a plot, a single plot, from an episode of He-Man from when you were a kid? Not one you've seen since then, not like the episodes that I rented when I was, you know, after I graduated high school and wanted to reconnect with my youth, like I 
ever really grew out of that anyways. But seriously, can you remember a single freaking episode that that, that, that did anything that progressed the storyline along? No, Skeletor with whatever henchmen they wanted to put in that episode, trying to do something to Castle Grayskull, He-Man stopping him, and everybody kind of laughing at the end, and Orko telling you what the big point of the episode was. Like the Ram Man one, which was, even if you're short, you can fucking do something with your life. Ugh. Okay, tangent done. Uh, anyways, Man-at-Arms serves pretty much the same function in the story uh, that he did in the animated series, though he doesn't have that stylin' 70s mustache. And, uh, and, uh, and, and now, for some reason, whenever I think of Man-at-Arms, I think of, like, Burt Reynolds in that outfit, and that would have been... That would have been uh, kind of cool. Uh, eventually, DC would release a 16-page preview, which, as we mentioned on Tales of the JSA a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the zero and first ep- issues of All-Star Squadron. This is something DC did to kind of build up new projects. And they would do a three-issue miniseries for Masters of the Universe. But that was all DC would do for the line. Eventually down the road, Marvel would publish a Masters of the Universe book for its Starline. And that book, oddly enough, was the very first comic I ever tried to seriously collect. I got to issue four, and I liked it. You know, the reality is is that I just lost interest. Uh, but I like to lie to myself and tell, tell myself before I, I, I cry myself to sleep that it was the jalapeno character that really made me go, what the hell is going on here? Um, that Starline lasted, like, at least 12 or 13 issues, too. Uh, I have the first issue, because I just had to buy it. Again, you know, I I'd lost it at some point. And, you know, maybe someday I'll buy the whole thing, read it, and talk about it here. But my God in heaven, was it bad. You know, Star Comics, I don't know if you all know this, Star Comics were not, this, you know, the mark of quality. There were There were very few that were actually any good. Uh, it was a good effort by, by Marvel to do a kid's line, but damn, some of that just sucked ass. Anyways, that's it for this week. Uh, next week, Scott and I should be back on for our usual routine. Uh, I hope you like this, and and, and now I, I need to track down that Superman He-Man 2-pack action figure thing that Mattel has released, uh, because, yeah, I really freaking want it. Yeah, I want it a lot, as a matter of fact. Bye, all. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the 2 True Freaks section of the comicforums.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demonzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.